So Ezra chapter 9, and we'll begin reading uh, together at verse number 1. The Bible says, after these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the land with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, Oh, my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. My God, our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves. Yet our God is not forsaking us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the houses of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land that you are entering, to take possession of it. It is a land impure, with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved, and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice this abomination? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O oh Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. 
Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Well, coming to chapter 9, we see a second wave of Jewish exiles. Approximately 5,000 of them have safely made their arrival to Jerusalem. And they've done so under the leadership of Ezra. And this opportunity was given to Ezra so that the work of rebuilding the city would continue. And the nation of Israel as a whole would be revived as God's holy people. In fact, Ezra's primary responsibility was to bring with him Levites and priests who would teach the people the law of God and then establish magistrates and judges who would keep the people accountable to the law of God. You can go back to chapter 7 to see those specific instructions given by King Artaxerxes to Ezra as he was making plans to leave with this next group of exiles going back to Jerusalem. And so as they arrive, they immediately get to work doing what they were commissioned to do. Verse 36 of Ezra chapter 8 says that they aided the people in the house of God. And so they arrived and they got to work, aiding the people, aiding the house of God, which presumably included Ezra's emphasis on teaching the law of God. In fact, as we ride ride straight into Ezra chapter 9 in verse number 1, we see that the Bible begins with this statement, after these things had been done, after these things had been done, it means that Ezra was actively fulfilling his role. He's teaching the word of God. He's preaching God's word. He's laying out the law of God clearly for the people to understand. But what is true now is true then. God's word exposes sin. Always and in every place, in each generation, God's word exposes sin. Psalm 119, 130 says, the unfolding of your words give light. That the teaching of your words are like a light shone on our hearts. It reveals the darkness. It shines the light and exposes what is the reality of who we are. Romans chapter 7 and verse 7 says, If it had not been for the law, the law of God, I would not have known sin. It's the law of God, the the word of God that reveals even our condition as sinners. Of course, Hebrews 4 reminds us that the word of God is living and it is active, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Therefore, Hebrews 4 says, no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eye of him to whom we must give account. God's word exposes sin. And at the fundamental issue of our relationship with the word of God, this is why it is so often neglected. Not because it's hard to understand, but because we do understand it. 
because we do know what it says. We have heard the implications against our hearts. That's why it's such a struggle to get people to come to hear the preaching of God's word. They don't want to hear the preaching of God's word. They know what the God's word is going to do in shining the light on their souls. God's word exposes Sin, whether you're reading it alone, whether you're listening to it, whether you come across a verse of scripture that you're exposed to, or whether you're hearing it in this moment, God's word is a light that always shines on who we are. And so, no wonder we see Ezra returning the word back to its preeminent place in Israel that the light started shining on sin. You see, the light had been dimmed for a little while. The teaching of it, exposure to the law of God, and it had been quieted. And so here Ezra has returned, 5,000 people with him, setting up judges, putting Levites and priests in their place. What did we come back to do? Well, we're going to rebuild the city, but ultimately we're going to revive it. Well, how are we going to revive it? We're going to teach the law of God. And as they taught the law of God, people got uncomfortable. I want you to see three things in chapter 9 and what has been in many people's understanding a very difficult chapter. But I don't think it's that difficult at all when you look at it in the context of what we see God is dealing with here. First of all, let's acknowledge, number one, an unholy compromise in Israel. An unholy compromise in Israel. So God's word in verses 1 and 2 exposed that there had been widespread indifference for holiness in family life throughout Israel. That's the issue in here. God's word is being taught. The law of God is being preached. And as it is, God's word is exposing the fact that there is a widespread indifference toward the holiness of God in family life throughout Israel. It seems that while the people were going through the routines of temple holiness, they had completely disregarded God's word about the holiness of their families. Look at it there in verse 1. The scripture says that the officials approached Ezra and said. And that, by the way, time out, side note, is even interesting itself. Ezra didn't show up the, at the people's houses, sitting down with the families and showing them how rebellious and unholy they had been. No, he's just preaching the word. And as he's preaching the word, the Holy Spirit is convicting the hearts of the people where now they're coming to him and they're confessing their error. They're confessing their wrong. And notice it again. The officials approached Ezra, and here's what they said. The people of Israel and priests and Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the land. Specifically here, regarding their abominations. And he mentions who they are, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, Jebusites, Amazites, Moabites, Egyptians, Amorites. For they have taken some of the daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons. So that, notice this, the holy race, the holy race has mixed itself with people of the land. 
And in this faithlessness, in this disobedience, the hand of the officials and chief men have been foremost. Those who are responsible for teaching the law of God are the ones who have been the most guilty. Now, in just those two opening verses, there's a lot to unpack here, isn't there? But let's go ahead and acknowledge what is the issue that at the heart of this unholy compromise in family life is the act of intermarriage. Intermarriage. God's holy people had married unholy people. Now, it's very important that we understand that in its context because the problem here with the intermarriage was not an issue of ethnicity. It was an issue of religion. Religion. This is a worship problem, not a race problem. And you have to go back to the specific command that God gave the children of Israel to understand this clearly. That command is in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Write write that down. You can look at it later on your own time, but let me read it to you. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, you are entering to take possession of it. And he clears away many nations before you. And he names them the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Here's the command. God says, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. And here's why. Deuteronomy 7, 4. For they would turn away your sons from following me. If you intermarry with this unholy people, if you mix your family life in this idolatrous people, what's going to happen is they're going to turn away your sons from following me and your sons are going to go serving other gods. Serving other gods. They would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Now, verse 4 of Deuteronomy chapter 7 is always, always the concern that prompts our need to be holy in every area of our life. And what I mean by that is unholiness opens the door for younger generations to walk away from God. Unholiness in any area of our life. Remember, the context of this is family life, but it goes beyond family life. Unholiness in any area of our life opens the door of opportunity for younger generations, our children, our grandchildren, those who are influencing, those who are watching us, to walk away from God. That is why God, in these early stages of Israel's life, prohibited them from intermarrying with other people. Of course, he also identifies the children of God as a holy race here, which we'll come to in just a moment. Another reason why it was important for them to remain together is because the promised Savior is supposed to come through the seed of Israel to disobey God in this regard and go against his holiness could affect the promised coming of the Messiah. 
the blessed seed of the woman who would destroy the seed of the serpent. Well, that's just there for you to think about and understand as you're walking through all the implications about this. But let me be clear, this is not about race. And anybody who would ever indicate for one moment that this is about race is accusing God of being a racist. God is not a racist because he is not a sinner. This is not about racism. This is about worship, worship. Worship. For example, who did Moses marry? Well, Moses married a woman by the name of Zipporah. Do you know she wasn't a Jew? She was born a Midianite. How about Boaz? Boaz fell in love with a young Jewish girl named Ruth. No, 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 not at all. He fell in love with a young Moabite girl whose name was Ruth. But in both of these cases, Zipporah and Ruth had already converted to worshiping the God of Israel. So Moaz, or Moaz, I'm mixing Moaz. That's what you get when Moaz and Boaz hook up. Moaz, all right. Uh, Mo, Moses and, and Boaz, they never compromised their holiness by marrying idolatrous women because they didn't marry idolatrous women. They married women who had pledged their lives to the God of Israel even though they were not born Jews. But in the case of Ezra 9, in the context here, Scripture's clear in verse 1. God's holy people had embraced the abominations of the unholy people living around them. That's the problem. They had embraced the abominations of the unholy people living around them. Around them. In fact, many many scholars believe that in Psalm 106 we have a description of these exact abominations. Psalm 106, verse 34 says, They did not destroy the people as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, they sacrificed their sons and daughters to demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their own sons and daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the whole land was polluted with blood. They, that is God's holy people, they became unclean by these acts and played the whore in their deeds. There's also a reference in Malachi chapter 2 suggesting to us that the men of Israel actually divorced their Jewish wives in order to marry pagan idolatrous women who just so happened to be daughters of wealthy landowners. And it's there in Malachi chapter 2 that we hear that infamous phrase, God hates the putting away. God hates divorce. And in this case, the Jewish men were walking away from their Jewish wives just because she was prettier and her daddy had more money to offer. It's astonishing, really. But the same acts of unholiness happen every day around us in our own culture. I just... 
I just don't fill it with her like I used to. Or the guy that I'm working with over here, he just he just does for me what my husband's never done for me. We start excusing it. Convincing ourselves that we were really made for that person or they were really made for us. And we walk away from God's covenant blessing, God's covenant promise by going into unholy unions. And because Israel did what was unholy, behaving in a manner that was unfaithful and breaking God's commands, they were sacrificing their future. You see, if they had continued, Israel would no longer be a distinct people through whose line the redemptive promise of a Savior would come. They were sacrificing their future. And may we take the point of application clear for our own lives today. If you and I, in our own family life, do not take seriously God's command for us to live in holiness. We will put the future of our children's faith in jeopardy. Remember, this is about holiness, holiness unto God, obedience unto him. And God's call to be holy was not just for the Jews, it's for the Gentiles. It's for every Christian who follows him. 1 Peter 1, 14 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. Be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written in Leviticus, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And yes, that includes making the holy decision in context here, not to marry unbelievers. That's a part of it. Again, this is not about race. This is about worship. It's not about ethnicity. It's about religion. God's holy people walked away from holiness by embracing the unholiness of people they fell in love with. To be holy as God is holy, the principle still remains. The Jewish seed has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But the principle of holiness remains. In fact, Paul clarifies that for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? We are the temple of the living God. And God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Don't touch the unclean thing, and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. You will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. 
It involves the holy decision not to marry unbelievers. But holiness in family life is more than just marrying the right person. It's living in faithful, obedient worship to God. That's holiness in family life. It's living in faithful, obedient worship of God. It goes back to what we said a moment ago. Unholiness opens the door for younger generations to walk away from God. The fact very may well be that we have entered into a marital union, a a marriage covenant with another believer, but, but how's the holiness in your family life today? Is worship a preeminent part of your life? Obedience to God, the aroma of your home. Holiness in your spirit, holiness in your words. Holiness in your, in your actions. If holiness is not the aroma of our homes, if holiness is not the priority of our families in our faithful obedience to God, then we are opening the door of abominations wide open to our children. God doesn't really matter. We just say that he matters. Go on out there. Live it up. Embrace the unholiness of this world. Church family, God wants to bless you, and he wants to bless your family. But he blesses holiness. He blesses holiness. Unholy idolatry is anything that we put ahead of fully devoted worship and obedience to God. Anything. And I, and I just I just wonder tonight, whatever it is that, that the Holy Spirit of God is convicting your own heart about tonight, that is, that is ahead of worship, that is ahead of obedience, that is ahead of holiness in your life. But my question is, are those areas of unholy compromise worth risking the blessing of God and the faith of future generations? There's an unholy compromise. In Israel. Number two, there's a paralyzing conviction in Ezra. A paralyzing conviction in Ezra. Verse three, Ezra says, As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment, my cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard. I sat down appalled. And then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the return exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until evening, sacrificed. He was absolutely devastated. Appalled, horrified at those who had forsaken the holiness of God in their family. The, the, the whole scene of tearing his garment, pulling the hair from his face, it was a, it was a sign of, of deep mourning. And he just, he just sat there silently with nothing to say. It's as if he dropped from his feet to the ground in a paralyzing state of disbelief. How is it, perhaps he thought, how is it that these whom God has blessed, bringing them out of exile and home to Jerusalem, could just abandon the holiness of God and forsake his word like this? I'm blown away. I don't know what to say. Appalled. 
soon, verse 4 tells us that others joined him. And they're all sitting there together. And notice the word that he uses in verse 4. Trembling at the words of God. Appalled at the unholiness of the people. Trembling. It's an interesting thought because sometimes Scripture makes us laugh. There's, there's not a verse of Scripture that says, and Jesus laughed. But sometimes, sometimes he says things and does things where that's all we can do is laugh. He's, he's being very humorous by what he's saying. And sometimes Scripture makes us laugh. Sometimes it makes us cry. Sometimes it fills us with joy. But sometimes it causes us to tremble. To be so convicted by our sin that we are paralyzed by the unholiness of our hearts. I wonder tonight, has God's word ever gripped you like that? To come face to face with the reality of your sin and unholiness before the holiness and perfection of God that you, that you just trembled at his word in disbelief. You could have done that, said that, thought that. It's very important that we understand how essential trembling is in our assurance of God's faithfulness to us. Isaiah 66, 2 says, God speaking on this one, I will look. He who is humble, contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. I just simply don't understand the idea that you can claim to know God and never tremble at his word. Derek Thomas said, before we can make any strides in godliness, we must first of all uncover the extent and seriousness of our depravity. Have you been there? Oh, I have. It's not a fun experience. For God to uncover before you the seriousness of your unholiness. It's a trembling like you can't describe. And that's what Ezra's doing here. The word of God exposed their sin and those who know God and those who believed his word are now trembling with Ezra at the knowledge that they have royally messed up. A paralyzing conviction, and then write down number three, a corporate prayer of confession to God. A corporate prayer of confession to God. That's the remainder of the chapter. And, and the remainder of the chapter, verses 5 through 15, it's, it's a prayer. It's a prayer. Verse 5 says, and at the evening sacrifice, Ezra speaking, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn, fell upon my knees, spread out my hands to the Lord my God, and said... And said, Ezra does what only we can do when our eyes have been opened to the unholiness that is within us. The only thing we can do is look to God. Look to God. Ezra arises from his silence, lifts his head, hands toward heaven, and he, and he begins to pray. 
And, and notice several things about his prayer. The first thing I wrote down here is that Ezra's prayer identified himself with the people. Very important here. His prayer identified himself with the people. He immediately sees this as our problem, not just their problem. Look at it in verse 6. Our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. And on and on he goes, emphasizing the the corporate nature of this prayer, that, that though he himself is innocent, he's not standing above them. He's not looking down on him. No, this is the community he belonged to. This is the community that he served. This is the community that God had put in him. So their sin was a sin that he took seriously himself. And it's it's a great example for any Christian leader. In church, in our homes, with our kids, in our marriages, to not stand above those whom God has placed in our life as if they're the problem, but recognizing that this problem of sin around them is also my problem. It's also my problem. Ezra's prayer identified himself with the people. Think about that in the Lord's prayer. The Lord's prayer was written to teach us how to pray corporately as a people. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It's about us as a people who desperately need God. It is about us as a people who fall short in our sin before God every day. Yeah, it's easy to say, Lord, my, my, my kids, they do this and they do that, but, but how much of that, honestly, have we contributed to? Instead of their problem, this is our problem. My, my, my husband, my husband this and, and my husband that was, it's not always his problem. Sometimes it's, it's, it's our problem together. We're in this together. The Bible talks about that. The, the, the spouse exists to sanctify one another. That is, our sin together needs to be brought before God together in order for the whole realm to be sanctified as a people. Ezra identified himself with the people. He also, secondly, I wrote down, Ezra's prayer acknowledged the sin committed. He acknowledged the sin committed. In addition to confessing our iniquities and our guilt, he acknowledges that as a people, they've continued in this repetitive cycle of unholy living for a very long time. He's honest about it. Verse 7, from the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And here we are again, he says, having broke your commandments again. Not trying to sweep it under the rug, blame it on other things. It's as if he says, God, I just don't know what to say. I mean, we're, we're just in this repetitive cycles of people. We sin, we commit sexual perversion, we're idolaters, you take us in captivity, throw judgment on it, then by grace you receive us or relieve us and bring us back home and here we are again, back in the same idolatry, same perversion, same cycle of sin that we're always in, same, 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 same old. He's honest. He's serious about it. Why? Because he's seen the holiness of God. Friends, anyone who makes light of sin has never truly seen the holiness of God. 
There's no making light of this by Ezra. This is a full-on confession of sin. He acknowledged the sin that they had committed as a people, as a nation. Then I wrote down number three, Ezra's prayer remembered the grace that God had given. Ezra's prayer remembered the grace that God had given. Verse 8, but now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God. Remember, he, he had just said in verse 7, we're, we're in this repetitive cycle. We keep messing up, screwing up, sinning. We're, 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 we're going through the same old problem of sin and guilt, and we've always struggled with them. But now, but now, verse 8, for a brief moment, you've given us favor. The favor specifically of bringing this remnant of exiles out of captivity and returning them to the land of promise. In fact, he called it here in verse 8, a little reviving. I like that. A little reviving. He's acknowledging, hey, we have a long way to go because here I am confessing all this sin that we're currently involved in. But you've been so gracious that you've given us a a little reviving. A little reviving. Verse 9, for we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery. He has extended to us his steadfast love before the king of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruin, and to give us protection. Verse 13, and after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved. God, you have been so gracious to us. You have been so gracious to us, but here we are having broken your commandment all over again, doing the same unholy things that caused our captivity in the first place. We, we truly don't deserve any more of your grace. In Ezra's prayer, he is doing what all Christians should do in the confession of their own sin. Move from the faithlessness of our sin to the faithfulness of God's grace. From faithlessness of our sin to the faithfulness of God's grace. He just pauses to say, God, even though we've been so stupid, you have still been so gracious. And here we are again. Once again asking you to fix our stupidity. To give grace to our sin. And that's how he closes the prayer in verse 15. I wrote down my fourth statement here. Not only did Ezra identify himself with the people, acknowledge the sin, remember the grace, but he yielded themselves to God's perfect justice. Very important thing he does here. He yielded themselves to God's perfect justice. He knew that they deserved the severest of punishments. So he yields himself and the people to God's perfect Justice. Look at it, verse 15. O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. For we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. In other words, there's nothing we can do. No defense for our actions. We have sinned and we are guilty. And now we appeal to your perfect justice. Now that's quite a prayer in this dispensation of time. We appeal to your justice. 
what is the justice of God? Well, let me tell you what the justice of God is. The justice of God is that his holiness requires sin to be punished. And here Ezra is saying, we appeal to your justice. Well, the good news for us is that he has punished our sin already through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Therefore, God is faithful and he is just to forgive us, not to punish us, but to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unholiness when we confess to God. The question here in this age in which you and I live in, a time period in which Christ has died for our sins, is will you take the punishment of God's justice that he has put in Christ on our behalf, or will you take the punishment of God's justice on yourself by turning away from the cross in unbelief? God has forgiven us for that stupid mistake we've made this week. God has extended his grace and mercy to you who have said more than you should have said. His justice is met in Jesus. But the question remains the same here. Shall we break his commandments again? Well, that's going to happen. But confession is coming to God in deep sincerity and by faith crying out to him, Lord, I don't deserve this. But please, be merciful again. Once again, in the ninth chapter of Ezra, we are reminded that there is no hope without the gospel. What's going to happen? How's God going to respond to this prayer? Well, you're going to have to wait for two weeks in chapter 10 to figure that out. But what he is telling us today, who look back to the cross, that there is no hope without the gospel. There is no hope without the gospel. But let us not leave without considering as well that through Ezra 9, we are also shown that the gospel propels us forward to a life of holiness. Holiness. Shall we break his command again? Are we really going to do this? Are we going to lose it again? Are we going to commit it again? Are we going to intentionally walk through that portal of sin again. Shall we break the commandments of God again? Paul said in Romans 12, I appeal to you brothers, by the mercy of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy to God, which is your worship. Not an issue of race, an issue of worship. Holiness is always an issue of worship. It's always an issue of worship. 
So Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, what is perfect, what is holy. Holy. May God help us to see his holiness. And in seeing his holiness, experience his grace. And in experience his grace, determining in our family life remain holy in all things uh, before our God. Father.